President Trump is just horrible on immigration. President Biden is not nearly as bad as President Trump is on immigration, but President Biden is not good on, mm-hmm. on immigration. You know, both parties have prioritized fiscal responsibility too low on, on their list of priorities. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that President Clinton balanced the budget. You know, President Bush kind of blew that up. President Obama took some steps to reduce the deficit, but didn't really go as far as, as he should have. Hello, welcome again to the episode of the Let People Prosper Show. I hope you're having a prosperous day. My name is Dr. Vance Gann, and today I'm delighted to have on another guest who is always talking about free markets and making sure that we have fiscal solvency and letting us know that the American dream is not dead and it's none other than Michael Strain. Michael, welcome to the Let People Prosper Show. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here, and I uh, hope that you are having a prosperous day. Well, I am. I, I certainly am. Uh, every day. I try to. I'm blessed. That's for sure. So let me, for the audience, go ahead and read your bio, and then we'll jump right into it. Michael Strain is the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, also known as AEI. His research and writing span a wide range of areas, including labor markets, public finance, social policy, and macroeconomics. He has published several dozen articles in leading academic and policy journals. Dr. Strain is also author of the American dream is not dead, but populism could kill it, which we're going to talk about some today, in which he examines long-term trends and economic outcomes for typical workers and households. He received his PhD in economics at Cornell University. So with all of that, Michael, why do you do what you do every day? To answer that question, honestly, you know, a, a big part of Please. the reason, I don't have many other uh, marketable skills, <laughs> and I <laughs> have to Put food on the table and and pay the mortgage. I went into this line of work. I was I was attracted to economics because I really thought it could answer some of the most important questions facing society in a you know better way than mm-hmm. than alternative academic disciplines. You know, economics I've always thought of at, kind of at its best answering uh, empirical positive questions to be an input into normative uh, debates. So you know, when I was in school, I you know tried to develop the skills required to to answer normative questions um but i needed much more help being able to answer empirical questions than than being able to answer you know normative questions and so and so economics was a, a route yeah. to being able to you know really kind of understand what's happening uh out there in the world and and then to understand how to how to make it better you know why do i practice uh, economics in the way that I do, it really is to, you know, kind of push the country in a better direction. Hmm. The word I would use is not, uh, I mean, prosperity is important. You know, ultimately, I think, you know, prosperity is a path to broader notions of of, of, of human flourishing yeah. and, of, and of social flourishing. You know, that's a big part of a big part of what gets me out of bed in the morning is yeah. being able to play a teeny tiny small role in the you know conversation that is happening in in Washington. And I think uh, Aristotle kind of conceived of politics as answering the question, how ought we to order our life together? Mm-hmm. And you know, ought is of course a normative word, um, but that's you know that's that's kind of what we're doing is we're trying to figure out you know what's the best way to to order our order our life together. And you know, I have some thoughts on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, just just a few. And we're, I want to hear them. I, I do want to hear them, Michael. You know, one of the things that you you talked about there was a lot of good information. It's kind of where I'm at too on economics as as a tool uh, with looking at the world and how it works. It always made sense to me when I first started studying it, and helping us hopefully to understand more, so we won't repeat the same mistakes again that we have in the past and come up with something new. One of the things you brought up though was about prosperity, and you know my whole mantra that I've been doing and the title of this 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 show is to let people prosper. And, and like I've talked about before I don't, I don't mean it from a material prosperity that that's part of it but i also mean it from a spiritual it's part of it yeah it's an important part yeah, of it we can't do a lot if we don't have those material things but it's For also sure. spiritual right like you have the opportunity to do those things it's freedom of speech i mean there's so much that's involved with prospering or flourishing um which i, I love that word as well and, and so i think that the, it's important to, to, to distinguish those things because some people say oh well you're just a prosperity gospel talking about that and you know it, it's not that it, it's that we can have so much more if we are given freedom and liberty and, and I'm a classical liberal Michael and so from that perspective and that background you know it kind of jumps into economics just makes sense is let yeah, people I, flourish and I agree with you on the importance of, of broadening the lens and and you know looking uh, at prosperity or flourishing you know to include material uh, well-being but also to include the ability to express yourself the ability to say what's on your mind the ability to practice your faith and and, yes. and, and, and to reach you know to have spiritual fulfillment but uh, but I do think it's important not to downplay the importance of material well-being yeah. in a lot of the fights that we're having in the public square these days between people who you know kind of push back against this growing bipartisan consensus that we need more central planning, more involvement from Washington in, in economic affairs. Folks on our side yeah. are often accused of caring too much about GDP or mm. caring too much about material well-being. And I think we've I think we've conceded that point a little too mm. we've gone a little too far. Yeah. In conceding that point, material well being is really valuable. Yeah. You know, uh, scientists just cracked the code on the first drug to really make some progress against Alzheimer's. Hmm. That's, that's an amazing thing. You know, that's, that's, that's material consumption. That's kind of material well being. Uh, you know, that happens because pharmaceutical companies can pursue profits. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's life changing. You know, if you, if you look at the United States, when the food stamp program was enacted, hmm. which, you know, wasn't that long ago, Yeah. Uh, you know, six decades or so child poverty was rampant. Children didn't have enough food. Mm -hmm. Children were starving in large numbers. That's bad. So, you know, it's easy to, you know, the kind of Bernie Sanders critique, you know, how many different kinds of deodorant do you need? Mm -hmm. You're starting to hear, you're starting to hear, you know, you walk into a grocery store, there are, you know, I think Sanders said 23, you walk into a grocery store, there are 23 kinds of deodorant, how many do you need? You know, you're hearing very similar criticisms from from the kind of populist and nationalist uh, right political right these days. And I, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think for, for individuals and for a society that has never really had to deal with material deprivation, downplaying the importance of material well-being is pretty easy. Yeah. But, uh, yep. You know, the ability of markets to generate consumption goods is yeah. really remarkable. And it, it really is. And it's a new phenomenon. I mean, I like the hockey stick that kind of shows GDP per capita over time. And, it, and this is very recent. 
I mean, eighteenth, you know, late eighteenth century, really in the nineteenth century, is when really you start to see it pick up dramatically as there were expansion of markets, more capitalism that was happening. A lot of these things, the profit and loss system, <laughs> better allocating resources, and allowed us to be more prosperous in, in in the process. And now we have increasing life expectancies. There's just so much more that we could have because of that material well-being that that's there. It, it, you're exactly right. It's it, it, you're right on there. And what's interesting about all this. You know, Michael, kind of going to your point about the left and, the, and some on the right <laughs> seem to be joining forces to some extent, is that we hear this idea about the American dream is dead. And, and you have this book, The American Dream is Not Dead, although populism might kill it or something, you know, right on those lines. But but I wonder, like, what, what is your point? Like, when you go and start talking to these folks, and that, that book came out in 2020, so there was something else that happened in 2020 with, <laughs> with the pandemic and lockdowns and all this other stuff that's going on. But those issues are still there. If anything, they're more alive and well than ever. And so I wonder what you've heard and, and if your thoughts have changed any, or maybe they've gotten even more along those lines. But, but what do you say about The American Dream is Dead? Dead. Yeah, I, I I was just struck and kind of continue to be struck by this bipartisan consensus that everything is terrible. Uh, you know, you hear these assertions about how they, the gains from economic growth only accrue to the top. You hear these assertions that wages and incomes for typical workers and households have been stagnant for decades. You hear these assertions that America is no longer an upwardly mobile society. Hmm. You, you know, see all this concern about the hollowing out of the of the labor market, the middle of the labor market. You know, this idea that you know capitalism is this you know system that just kind of destroys jobs and destroys opportunities. You know, you hear it from the political left. Here from the political right, you know, just read President Trump's first inaugural address. Uh, you know, talking about rusted out factories mm. scattered like tombstones across the United States, yeah. referring to American carnage. You, know, you hear very similar rhetoric from Bernie Sanders, very similar rhetoric from from Josh Hawley, Republican, very similar rhetoric from Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat. Yep. You don't just hear it from political leaders. I mean, you hear it from economists, you hear it from opinion leaders. You hear it from, you know, uh, cable TV show hosts. You hear it from the business community. You know, I think that it's just not true. You know, in a very, I mean, the, the claims are so overstated yeah. that, that they're just wrong. If you look at the 1970s and 80s, you know, mm -hmm. sure, we had stagnant or declining wages for, for typical workers uh, on average. A lot of that because of the high inflation of yeah. the 1970s that ate away nominal wage gains. But, you know, for if you look at the last 35 years, you know, since we really got inflation under control in the 80s, you know, you compare inflation adjusted wages for production and non-supervisory workers for, you know, kind of workers, mm -hmm. not managers in 1990, compare that to today, we've seen a 40% increase mm. in inflation adjusted wages, even given the inflation we've had in yeah. the last few years, you know, that is a big increase in the purchasing power of typical uh, workers. You know, similar trends with, with household income. Mm -hmm. uh, it is true that there's been a lot of occupation destruction in the middle of the labor market, but the process of creative destruction creates as well as destroys. Yeah. And there's job growth in lots of occupations that pay middle 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 wage, uh, lots of middle wage occupations. If you look at upward mobility, you know three quarters of of, of people who are in their forties today uh, have a higher income than their parents had when their parents were in their forties. Mm. 
It's not 100%. Yeah. We should want it to be 100%. Yeah. But the idea that America is some sort of a caste system, <laughs> you know, or, or or some sort of society where where you know nobody goes on to earn more than their parents did is just it's just not true. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that the public debate around these issues had become so detached from just basic facts. I yeah. mean, some of what I've just reported, you can download it from the Department of Labor's website. You know, I felt that the narrative had gotten so detached from from the um, empirical reality that I that I wanted to try to correct it. Yeah. Um, I think developments since the pandemic have only strengthened my mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think we learned in the pandemic is just how resilient households are, workers are, businesses are uh, in the U.S. economy is. Um, if you look at where the economy is now, you wouldn't even know there was a pandemic. Mm. You know, over the course of the past few years, wages have grown faster at the bottom than the top. Wage inequality has declined um, over the course of the past few years. You know, we have seen some real wage increases. I mean, this inflation has been a problem for sure. Yeah. It's eroded, it's eroded uh, uh, wages and incomes. But you know, it'll that'll be a blip uh, in 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 the longer term trend. We have a we have a huge increase in entrepreneurship. Hmm. Uh, and in people starting businesses that's happened over the past few years. That's one of the ways that the American economy and the American people have responded to this pandemic is by starting a business. Yeah. What a remarkable thing. What an astonishing testament to our, our workers, to our workforce, yeah. that in the face of the plague, we respond by saying, well, now's the time for me to you know, hang a shingle and start a business and, 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 and use this as an opportunity. The health of the American dream has only strengthened. I love the optimism. The optimism is empirically supported. Yes, exactly, exactly. But too often we hear about everybody, everything's down and in, in the doldrums and everything else. And I wonder, doing your research and, and writing your book and everything else, did you pinpoint maybe what started some of that? I mean, populism has always kind of been underneath a little bit. Uh, I know during the Trump years, it definitely escalated quickly. Was that really where you started to see the, you know, the, the breaking point happen? Or was there something else going on? Well, I think you're, you're right to point out that, you know, this sort of stuff is kind of always, always out there. Yeah. And I do think that that's the way an economist would, would think about it, right? We've had a, we've had kind of a, 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 an increase on the margin. Yeah. And, you know, what we don't, I think sometimes we convince ourselves that our political challenges are really a lot larger than they are. Mm. Um, we don't need to eradicate the crazy in both parties. Yeah, we just need to reduce the crazy. I think the roots of of, of populism really start in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really good uh, economics research that 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 studies what happens to advanced economies following financial crises mm. if you look at 40 or 50 advanced economies and you go back 150 years or so what you see is that you have a financial crisis causes a severe recession causes a big increase in populism mm. yeah how do you measure populism you know uh, advanced economies have parliaments and you can look at the share of, of of the seats in parliament that are held by by members of a populist party on average, it takes about 10 years for that sentiment to recede and for the populist share of the legislature to return to where it was prior to the financial crisis. This is not something we see with typical recessions. It's not even something we see with severe hmm. uh, recessions that aren't caused by financial crises. It really is 
driven by financial crises. And, you know, why is that? You know, imagine a recession that's caused by, you know, some sort of commodity shock, mm-hmm. right? Big spike in oil prices, or imagine a recession that's caused by a mistake from the central bank. Those increase unemployment, those are damaging events yeah. for sure, but they don't reach into the pockets of millions of households mm-hmm. in the way that a financial crisis does. Yeah. You know, millions of Americans woke up one day and their homes were worth less than than they than they were before. You know, people feel cheated. So, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that we saw following the financial crisis, the rise of the Tea Party on the right, the rise of Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. uh, on the left. I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, Bernie Sanders almost beat Hillary Clinton for the nomination in, in uh, 2016 among Democrats and then kind of came back again in 2020. I don't think it's a surprise that we saw the rise of a populist uh, candidate, Donald Trump, in 2016. The crisis was severe. I mean, it took until 2014, mm. you know, so six years after the financial crisis, for median wages to recover their 2007 level. Yeah, Six years where households were were worse off than they were in the year 2007. I mean, that's 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 traumatic. Yep. I think we were kind of coming out of this moment in the later years of the Trump presidency. You know, then, of course, we had a pandemic. It's been a rough spell. That's where I would date it to is, you know, yeah. kind of 2012, 2013, you know, effect of the 08 financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating, too, because I can see all that kind of going together. I hadn't heard about some of those dates in, in years as far as 10 years after, and you see the changes, but that all makes a lot of sense, Michael, unfortunately, because it kind of goes back to uh, Rahm Emanuel, right, where he said, don't let a crisis go to waste. I'm mm-hmm. sure other people said it before he did, but that got popularized during the Obama years. And it reminds me of that because it's exactly right. Uh, that you could go in different directions depending on what that crisis is. It can mm-hmm. go into too much government, too little government, too much of a protest movement or something else. And we see that over time, depending on what the situation is. And so the great financial crisis, the great recession is what they like to call it. Um, definitely you saw a turning point in a lot of ways that may not have had the opportunity for someone like Trump to come up in 2015 and 2016, win the election and everything else. And, you know, during the Trump years, and, and, and I think you know this, Michael, but I, I worked there for a year. I was the chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget. So I worked under Russ Vote and, and others. And so I was there from June 2019 to May of 2020. So right during all the COVID stuff, found myself in a situation room and dealing with all that stuff at, at that time. And and look, I mean, there were some things that I thought were, were good about the administration, the deregulation. I thought there was a lot of good about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There was a, a lot of other things that I thought were, were good, but there was there was a lot that I didn't think were headed in a good direction either. When you looked at the protectionism and the tariffs that were going on, and when you looked at government spending and how there really wasn't an appetite, I think Russ and others had that appetite, but there wasn't from the top. So it's tough to get that done. Plus Congress passes the budget, but there wasn't really that push to, to try to get that done. You remember kind of Mnuchin and, and Nancy Pelosi having those uh, debates or, or coming to where they, where they find these bigger budgets at the end of the day. But I, you know, I, I am concerned that since 2020, after the election and what we've seen in the last couple of years, that now, whether it's the Biden administration or the Trump administration, they're advocating for a lot of the same things. And in fact, your new latest Financial Times piece talked about kind of this Trump-Biden connection where there's so much overlap 
whether it be protectionism, where you know Biden just just continued a lot of that. Um, Trump has talked about a 10%, if not higher, rate of tariffs for all everything that's coming in, which is going to hurt hurt Americans. But 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 I think that maybe it gets to what people feel. Going back to the American dream is dead, which is not. But it, but some feel that way that that there needs to be a government presence and a politician to say those things and do things so that they'll feel better about themselves. And that worries me because of the populist and larger government situation where too often what's really the cause of the problem is already too much government. So we're doubling down on government failures and making the situation worse. And so I wonder, Michael, like with your latest piece, I'd love for you to kind of go through some of those points there as we're kind of getting closer to wrapping up. But I think it's so important on what we're hearing about the freedom conservatives, which you and I are kind of members of, of that, and, and I was one of the original signatories. I believe you might have been, too. And then we have the national conservatives, uh, and they're talking about things on the right. So there's all this debate that's going on. And I wonder when we can actually get back to free market capitalism. Some talk about market fundamentalism out there, and like Orrin Caswell has a recent piece talking about that at Law and Liberty, saying market fundamentalists are the, the problem. I'm kind of like, well, where have they been in policy for, for so long? But, but given all this situation that we're on, I'd love to get your take, Michael, on where do you think we're at now and, and, and how do we overcome it and what's the future going to hold? I know it's a lot, a lot in there at once, but, but I think um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I think, I think we're in, in a bad place. You know, we have a bipartisan consensus right now that, you know, tariffs should be used liberally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, President Trump put a bunch of tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. President Biden suspended those. He didn't get rid of them. No. President Trump put, a bunch of tariffs on imports from China, you know, against a lot of people's expectations, President Biden kept those. Mm -hmm. You know, President Trump is talking about, as you said, a 10% across the board tariff, 60% tariff on Chinese imports. You know, that's just, that would just be a disaster for the U.S. economy. Uh, and it's just naked protectionism that, you know, that would backfire. I mean, it would hurt the manufacturing sector. It would reduce manufacturing employment. But yep. But President Trump and, and his advisors don't don't agree with that, even though you know that's the clear finding in the in the in the in the literature. You know, President Biden is also uh, a protectionist. He's you know, pushed for hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies to protect the manufacturing sector, to you know develop a green technology manufacturing sector, to relocate the production of uh, semiconductors to swing states in the 2024 presidential election. Uh, and so, you know, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, President Trump is uh, just horrible on immigration, demonizing immigrants, you know, hanging a sign on the Statue of Liberty that says, you know, you are not welcome here. He didn't literally do that, but that's mm. the, effect of, the effect of what he's doing. You know, President Biden is not nearly as bad as President Trump is on immigration, but President Biden is not good mm -hmm. on on immigration, you know, both parties have prioritized uh, fiscal responsibility mm. too too low on on their list of priorities. But you know, it wasn't that long ago that uh, President Clinton balanced the budget. You know, President Bush kind of blew that up. President Obama, you know, uh, took some steps to balance to reduce the deficit, but didn't really go as far as as he should have. But you know, there was at least a concern yeah. about fiscal responsibility. It was somewhere on the priority list. You know, uh, neither neither President uh, Trump nor President Biden seem to care at all about, about fiscal responsibility, even though, you know, the need to be fiscally responsible is so much larger yes. in 2024, just given the size and trajectory of our debt. 
than than it was in the 1990s or during the Bush presidency, George W. Bush presidency. You know, we used to have a bipartisan consensus around the value of personal responsibility. Mm. And presidents of, of, of both parties kind of called Americans to ask more of themselves, to ask more of their communities, to do more, to aspire to more. Yeah. You know, president, uh, and that's, again, bipartisan. That even kind of predates consensus around economic policy hmm. um, that was, you know, friendly friendly to markets that goes back decades before before you know president reagan kind of had that regime change mm-hmm. president biden president trump you know each in their own way to be sure you know indulge this narrative of grievance of victimhood of class division that really you know asks americans to be smaller and to be smaller than they should be yeah and to aspire to less didn't think i'd you know be pining for the days of the clinton administration but you yeah. know here you know kind of here we are and so you know when's that going to be better i mean the Republican nominating contest is not over yet. Yeah. Yeah. There's still, you know, some, you know, some uh, uh, hope for Governor Hadley to be the nominee, who I think would handily win, win the general election. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a, a big project for folks who are, you know, disposed to uh, be friendly to markets, you know, disposed to classical liberalism, who believe that the, you know, again, kind of broad consensus that, governed the you know Reagan administration the Bush administration the Clinton administration the Bush administration even the Obama administration uh, who believed that consensus was was correct yeah you know need to get to work yeah uh and need to convince political leaders opinion leaders business leaders of the merits of that approach and need to build a coalition and need to be ready uh you know we have a we have a very you know, non-dynamic political system, mm-hmm. right? You know, parliamentary democracies throw out the prime minister, multiple parties, you know, parties, you know, grow and shrink in size, coalitions can form. You know, those those, those kinds of democracies, they have a political system that's much more amenable to, 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 to change and rapid change. You know, we have a presidential system. And so we kind of get to take a swing at, at change once every four years, mm-hmm. which is cumbersome. There's work that can be done in between elections. You know, Congress is very important. And so, you know, we need to, I think, do our best to to push public policy and to push the country in in, in a direction that, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, in a direction yep. that advances uh, prosperity, including material prosperity, yep. and, and that advances uh, human flourishing for as many Americans as possible. I agree. I, I, I've been saying and, and writing about how I think the the largest national crisis is the national debt, and that all goes to excessive government spending as it influences so much of our lives and, and everything else. And so I think you hit the nail on the head on some of the key issues that need to be discussed, not only this presidential cycle, but in, afterwards as well. And so you, I think you're also right that this election is not over. Many people consider it to be, but I don't think it is either. I mean, we need to be able to keep all this stuff in mind as we go through and think about prosperity and economic growth and uh, reducing poverty. I think these things are all going to be so important. Well, I really appreciate you being on the program with the Let People Prosper Show, Michael. Um, God bless you and your family and keep up the great work. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great conversation and look forward to talking some more in the future. Same here, same here. Well, for the audience, please leave us a five-star rating and go out and review and share it with your friends and family so we can get out this good message to everyone. Uh, until next time, let people prosper. Let people prosper.